Well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles or use the Pew Bible in front of you or your electronic devices and join me in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7, uh, the passage from which Connor read for us this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that you sent us our Savior. And Father, we would pray this morning as we continue to worship you from your word and in song that we might have a sense of appreciation for all that you have done for us and for the great events that we celebrate on Christmas. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess my only real explanation for what I did was that I was young and dumb. Have you ever looked back in your life and, and saw something you did and think, that was really dumb? Barb and I, early in our marriage, we were going on one of our, our first vacations, and we had decided that we were going to go to California. And so from the time we decided until we left, I got a phone call from my college roommate, and he said, Butch, you don't want to go to California. There's nothing to see there. Wrong. But we live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Come and spend the week with us. And so we talked about it, and we decided to go. The week, and I don't have time to go through all of the terrible things that happened during <laughs> that week, let me just suffice it to uh, give you just a little bit of insight. When we arrived, we found out that my roommate's wife uh, was pregnant and had really bad morning sickness. So where we were supposed to start out each day in the morning and go out and see things, now we had to wait until after she was uh, through the bad part of the morning sickness before we could start out. Then every afternoon, we had to check into our hotel early because she was tired and she needed to rest. And then the kicker on top of all of that was we learned that at midweek she was leaving to go see her mother and that Barb would get to spend the second half of her vacation with me and my former college roommate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh boy is correct. So as soon as we put his wife on the plane to fly to see her mother, my roommate came to me 
And he said, he didn't ask. He said, we're going to Vegas. I said, what? We're going to Vegas. My wife won't let me go to Vegas, but now that she's gone, and you can never say a word about this, we're going to Vegas because he wanted to go to Vegas to gamble, which he did all night. So since we were heading west, Barbara and I wanted to see the Grand Canyon. Now, it's springtime, and as we're going, we get into a major snowstorm. So when we arrived at the Grand Canyon, it was closed. But why should that stop us? We went around the chain on the road and drove up to one of the parking lots and got out of our car and took one of the trails to see the Grand Canyon. Now, let me add, it was so foggy you couldn't see 15, 20 feet in front of your face. I'm sure my guardian angel was working overtime to keep me from walking right off the cliff that day. But there we were at the Grand Canyon, and we could see absolutely nothing. Now, we've been back to the Grand Canyon since then, and it's something that pictures just do not do justice And we've noticed that everybody who's seeing it for the first time, their jaws drop and you hear the words, wow, coming out of their mouths as they see that magnificent canyon that God created. But we saw nothing our first time there because of the fog and the wonder And the awesomeness of all that is there all went unseen by us because of fog. I sometimes think as we come to Christmas, it is easy for us to lose the awe and the wonder of everything that took place on that very first Christmas. It somehow gets lost in the fog of busyness, in the fog of switching our attention from the real meaning of Christmas to something that is far, far less in importance. So this morning on this Sunday before Christmas, I hope that we can all pause And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we can consider how wonderful, how awe-inspiring, and how great the events and the meaning of this day are. The prophet Isaiah, who was writing nearly 600 years before the birth of Christ, wrote these words, and let me read them for us again so that they can sink in upon us. In verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we come to this passage in Isaiah 6, we need to understand that part of the context is that there are many prophecies in Isaiah speaking to the fact that the Lord is upset with his people. The phrase, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, is repeated five times within the context of the passage that we find before us in Isaiah chapter 9. Back in chapter 7 has been the great prophecy of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah reminds us that ultimately my Messiah will come and he will rule over all of Israel. He will be in David's line and his kingdom will stretch from there throughout the entire world. He will come from David and he will be anointed king even as David was anointed. So as we approach this passage with that context, the first thing that I want us to consider in the passage is the gift. The gift. Now, how many of you like gifts at Christmas time? How many of you are expecting to get a gift at Christmas time? How many are planning to give gifts at Christmas time? Husbands, you still have a few shopping days. If you haven't been there, you better get there. (laughs) Most of us will be giving gifts. Most of us will be receiving gifts. But the greatest gift giver is God himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gift giving begins with God himself. And in this passage, we are told in verse 6, for to us a child is born. That speaks to the humanity of Jesus. A child is born. A child is placed within a family of Joseph and Mary. A child fully Human. I can hardly comprehend that. Can you? That the God of the universe, Jesus, comes, and we call this the incarnation, and he comes into our world as a little baby. I I wonder, even as Mary looks at that baby, And she holds the Christ child in her arms. I wonder what was going through his mind. I know oftentimes we look at at children, and especially when they are newborns, and wonder, what do you think they're really thinking right now? 
I wonder what that was like for Jesus. The creator of the universe is here as a human, 100% human. Emmanuel, God is with us, fully human. But not only is a child born, but a son is given. And that speaks to his deity. That speaks to the fact that Jesus is God. God has come to earth. As we we think of that baby, sure, he's 100% human, but he is also 100% God. He's not some mixture of 50% human and 50% God. He is 100% human, and he is 100% God. He is the God-man. The Son is given from the Father to us. Fully God, fully human. Isaiah then goes on to say this in verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. Now, notice, first of all, it doesn't say his names. Actually, the term name is in the singular, not in the plural. His name shall be called. And he's going to give us a number of names that we're going to work through here in just a moment. But beyond that, that doesn't encompass all that Jesus is called throughout all of the Scripture. But Isaiah is saying, a son has come, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Now, there's a debate among Bible scholars as to this name of Jesus, and as it is given here in different parts, as to whether it should be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or whether it should be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see the difference there? This As we look at the first part of this wonderful counselor, was that intended to be one name or was it intended to be two names? Now, on the one hand, you have different commentators who are going to point out that the word wonderful is a noun, it is not an adjective. So, therefore, wonderful is not necessarily describing counselor but it's a separate name in and of itself. Now, the word wonderful means extraordinarily good and great, having a feeling of wonder, marvelous, extremely good and exciting, causing marvel, tending to excite wonder, surprising, extraordinary, surprisingly excellent, very admirable, Extremely impressive. And it's actually used as a name for the angel of the Lord. 
Now, when we talk about the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord only appears in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord, I believe each time we see it, it is a Christophany, which means it's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before he was born in Bethlehem. Sometimes you'll hear it called a theophany, God appearance, Christophany, Christ appearance. And from my study of the scripture, I believe every time the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's an appearance of Christ. And he appeared back to the father of Samson, Manoah. And when he appears to Manoah, Manoah asks the question, what is your name? And the response that was given to him is, why do you ask, seeing that my name is, and can you guess what the word is there? Wonderful. Why do you ask, seeing that my name is wonderful? So there is a case that can be built that what this passage is talking about, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. But then as we look at the structure of the passage, each other part of his name has two words together. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which has caused many commentators to come to the point of saying, and you see it related in the translation of the scripture we're reading here, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You ask, well, Butch, what's your opinion on it? Well, on on something like this, my opinion is I like both sides. And I don't think it's necessary for us to divide them. That his name is wonderful, that is a fact. But also, his name is Counselor, and certainly he is the wonderful Counselor. You need advice, you're facing a problem, there's no one who cares for you more as a Counselor than Jesus. There's no one that can give you better advice than Jesus. Fortunately, God has given us his word, and in his words are the words of Jesus. And oh, how much better we all would be if we just followed the word of God. What a better place our world would be if we just followed the Word of God, the God-inspired Scriptures that will never be wrong, that will never fail us, that will never point us in the wrong direction. And Jesus, when He was on earth, as we read about Him in the pages of Scripture, He always gave the right advice. He always knew what the issue was. And one of the things I appreciate about him is he always goes right for the heart of the issue. He's a wonderful counselor. Think of it. He met with Nicodemus. 
And Nicodemus comes and says, oh, we know you must be a teacher from God because no one can do the things that you do. And what does Jesus do? He goes right to the heart of the issue. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus couldn't understand that. And Jesus said, how can you be a teacher in Israel? And how can I tell you deeper things if you don't understand this very simple truth You need to be born again. And friends, I don't know what problems you may be facing this morning, but regardless of what your problems are, regardless of what your issues are, I can say to you that foremost and utmost, you need to be born again. You need to be born above, be born by the Spirit of God. You must be born again. I I think of Jesus as he talks to the woman at the well. And in the midst of their conversation, he says to her, woman, I want you to go get your husband. He's going right for the heart of the issue. And the woman says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, well, you've spoken the truth. Because the truth is, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. And he's going to talk to her about her need for living water. But Jesus has gone right to the heart of the issue. And may I say today, in our culture, it has not changed the truth of God And his standards have not changed. So if you're living with someone who's not your husband or not your wife, you need to separate from one another. I think of Jesus as he talks to the woman that they bring to him that was taken in adultery. Remember, they were ready to stone her. And Jesus has an interaction with them, and one by one, they turn and they go away. And Jesus then asks the question, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. Remember what he said to her? Go and sin no more. He goes right to the heart of the issue. One day Jesus is teaching and in the crowd someone cries out to him and says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus has a way of going right to the heart of the issue. He says, who made me an arbiter on those things? Jesus was going to the issue of greed and division within families. Remember the day the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to be justified by his works. Which commandments do I need to keep? And Jesus gave him some commandments. He says, all of these have I kept from my youth on up. First of all, that's pretty hard to believe, but then Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor. 
and he goes away. Sadly. Jesus, the great counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. And he can be all of that because we're told in John 2.25 that Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. We're also told that he was qualified as no human counselor could be qualified because in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, including the knowledge of human nature. Jesus always knows everything that is going on because he is the all-wise God and he is omniscient. He is wonderful. He's counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. He's mighty God, omnipotent. Remember the, the marvel of the people? And they said, even the wind and the waves obey him. He cast out demons by commanding them. He works miracle after miracle. He turned the water to wine, all the healing that he did, the raising of the dead, proving that he was mighty God. He is everlasting Father. Now that one has always puzzled me to try to understand when we just read it as it's in as it's translated here, that he's the everlasting Father. This doesn't mean that Jesus is the Father. Remember, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are God. But each are distinct as well. So initially, when I read this passage, it's always, he's the everlasting Father. Is it confusing the roles within the, the Trinity? But when you look at the actual language of what's being said here, what it really is saying is he is the father of eternity. That's what the words mean. Not that he is taking the role of the father, but that he is the father of eternity. Remember the words of John 1.1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The scriptures are not teaching here a form of modalism that says there is one God who takes on three different roles. That's a false view of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in their essence. But they are three in their persons. He is the everlasting Father. He is the prince of peace. Do you need peace? Does our world need peace? He is the prince of peace. And may I say uncategorically that peace on this earth will not occur until the Prince of Peace comes back and sets up his kingdom here. And the passage will talk about that. But the Prince 
of peace. We need peace with God. Do you have that peace? We come into this world born as sinners in need of a Savior. We are enemies of God. We are alienated from Him. And there's only one who can save us. And that was the one that came on that very Christmas day. Who would go to the cross and shed His blood so that we could have peace with God. But not only is there peace with God. But we need peace from God. You know, I I don't know what your life is like here this morning, what turmoil may be there. But I know in the midst of that turmoil, you can have peace with God because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I know as well that you can have peace from God. Think of that. Peace with God. From God. And we can have the peace of God. Through the Spirit of God who can dwell in us. Because our Savior, Jesus, was the Prince and continues to be the Prince of Peace. The next thing that I want us to see in the passage is the government. The government. Look at that in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jump down to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus will be king. There's a sense in which he is king now, which from the heavens he rules over all the earth. But there is a kingdom coming to the earth that has not yet arrived. And he won't be elected as king. It's not like choosing a president. He will come as king. And he will not run his kingdom the way that we see kingdoms being run. Because he will establish his will over all the earth. He will be king. And his kingdom will never end. There is no end to the increase of his government. Or of the peace that he brings. Messiah's reign will go on and on and on. And it will continue to advance and advance and advance. He will come, and the scriptures tell us, he will reign for a thousand years upon this earth. A literal thousand years, he will rule and reign. And during that time, Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loose, but he will be defeated once and all, and once and for all times by Christ 
the king, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Forever and ever. Listen, no one will overthrow his kingdom. No one is going to be able to get rid of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom will never end. He will rule, we're told in verse 7, on David's throne. Now those who point out and who do not believe in a thousand year reign of Christ will say, well, Christ is sitting on a throne right now. Certainly he is sitting on a throne in heaven. But notice what this passage is telling us. He will sit on David's throne. He will have a kingdom on this earth. He will rule on David's throne forever and ever. And then notice what we're also told about this government. Justice and righteousness will spread. Have you found injustice in our world? We don't have to look very far, do we, to find justice not being performed? Do we find within our world that there's a lack of righteousness, of people doing the right thing? You can barely watch the news without finding out about people who totally violate our laws, even laws that they pass themselves, that are good for everybody else but not for them. That'll not be the case with our Lord and with our Savior. There will be complete justice. There will be speedy justice. And righteousness will be rewarded. And righteousness will be going on day after day after day. Oh, how things will be different when Jesus is in charge. Do you see the wonder of this particular day that we are about to celebrate? The greatness of this day? We can tend because of the fog around us. Just as I couldn't see the Grand Canyon because there was so much fog. It didn't change the fact that the, the canyon was there. I couldn't see it because there were things that were keeping me from seeing it. In that case, it was the fog. Maybe there's a spiritual fog for those of you who do not know Christ that are keeping you from seeing the greatness and the significance of this day. And even as followers of Christ, we can let things come into our lives that will keep us from seeing the wonder and the awe of all that takes place on Christmas. And this year, I plead with each of us, let's not miss it. Let's think of its significance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior.
who has come. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace and of mercy and that you have been so gracious to us. And Father, I just pray as we approach this Christmas day this year, that we might have a divine perspective and that we would recognize the significance of the coming of our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.